0: Psalm two tonight. And um searching through my Bible for the Psalms again. Uh, as they say, it's sort of near the middle, slightly left of center. Right after the book of Job. Well, we are for the summer beginning a a series of uh, approximately 12 uh, studies in the Psalms that will take us through to the, the coming school year in the fall and we'll look at something new at that time. Why would we read and study the Psalms together? Uh, let me give you a variety of reasons before we look at this passage particularly. The Psalms are uh, part of the wisdom literature of the Old Testament. They teach us about God and about ourselves and about uh, life with God, they show us and others um, how to walk with God. They show us by the example of others what it's like to be in a relationship with God. So that's one reason. There are also songs, uh, even poems, and the hymn book of the Bible. This is uh, the Psalms are the song book of the Old Testament people of God, and they are the prayer book of the Bible. Though there are other places we can learn about prayer, there are 150. Places to learn about prayer in the Psalms. They call us to praise God and trust God. And they actually help us to do that. They give us the language for that. Uh, And just as music for us. uh, So the Psalms as music give expression to a vast array of emotions. I mean in the Psalms you'll find joy and sorrow. Happiness and sadness. uh, Fear, shame, anger, envy, pain, peace, confidence, gratefulness. This is why John Calvin called the Psalms an anatomy of all the parts of the soul. Because he said there's not an emotion of which anyone can be conscious that's not represented here as in a mirror. You can find all your emotions in the Psalms. And furthermore, he said... Uh, The Holy Spirit has drawn here all the griefs, the sorrows, the fears, the doubts, the hopes, the cares, the perplexities. In short, all the distracting emotions with which the minds of men are wont to be agitated. All this and more is in the Psalter. The Psalms are frequently quoted in the New Testament. It and Isaiah are um, the two, I believe, most frequently quoted books. In the New Testament, uh, they show us something about Jesus. They point to Him. They are fulfilled by Him. And uh, even tonight, I think you'll see very clearly how they do that as we look at Psalm 2. So for these and a variety of other reasons, we're going to spend a little time in this wisdom book called the Psalms. Psalm 2, as we come to it, is a royal, uh, kingly messianic psalm it it speaks of a king a coming king and it speaks of the messiah looks forward to uh, jesus himself it is one of the most quoted psalms in the new testament we'll look at a few occasions so if you have a bible keep it open and it begins with the turmoil of the nations but ends with a blessing on all who trust the lord psalm 2 is designed to bring you to blessing. So let me invite you to give your attention to God's word. Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, I will tell of the decree the Lord said to me you are my son today I have begotten you ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession you shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. In Him. Amen. This is God's Word. May He write it on our hearts. Let's look to Him in prayer. Father in heaven, we we pray that you would show us Jesus in your Word. Show us the truth about Him and even the good news. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. There are two ways to live. One way is to live your life in this world and to ask how can I fit God into my plan when it's convenient for me? And the other way is to live your life in the world and to ask, what is God doing in the world and how can I fit into his plan? The first way of living is captured by the William Henley poem Invictus. Uh, You may be familiar with its use in Dead Poets Society or the movie of that name uh, that recently came out. Just a couple stanzas go like this. Out of the night that covers me, black as the pit from pole to pole, I thank whatever gods may be for my unconquerable soul. It matters not how straight the gate, how charged with punishments the scroll. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. That's a way of saying... Whatever God may be or the gods, I'll work it or them into my life just as I please, however I please, whenever I please, if I please. Now the other way of living is to begin with God and ask what's he doing and how do I fit into that. Both ways are described in Psalm 2. The folly of the first way is highlighted in this passage And the second way is commended to us for our happiness. Yes, happiness. God's word wants you to be blessed. So what is God doing in the world and how can I fit into it? That's our question. And let me outline the passage where we're headed before we look at it together. The the psalm outlines, I think, fairly easily into four parts. In verses 1 to 3, you have the description of the rebellions of the nations against God and his king. Then in verses 4 to 6, you have God's response to the rebellion. Then in verses 7 to 9, you have the rule of the Son of God, the Messiah King who God sets up in response to the rebellion. And then in verses 10 uh, 10 through 12, you have the narrator calling us to repent and find refuge in this Son. So let me look at those four things with you tonight. The rebellion's... Of the nations against God and his king. Verses 1 to 3. Here the narrator tells you and us. The attitude and words of nations and peoples and kings against God. Why do they rage he says. They plot in vain. Uh, They set themselves against God and his anointed one. This is a description is it not. Of people living against God. It's a description of our. Our human nature against, set against God. And more than just God generically, God and his anointed one. That's the word for Christ or Messiah in Hebrew, Christ in Greek. uh, Set against God and the Messiah king, their hearts are set against him. Now interestingly, the New Testament picks up that very text in Acts chapter 4, verses 25 to 28. You might want to turn there with me. You may remember as we've been reading through the book. The apostles Peter and John had been arrested by the Jewish leadership for preaching about Jesus. We're in Acts chapter 4. But then they were released, and they went back to all the other disciples. There was much thanksgiving that they were freed. And they pray together to give thanks to God. And in their prayer, they quote Psalm 2. And now look, look at it. Acts chapter 4, verse 25. Who... Uh, They're they're praying to the Lord God of heaven who through the mouth of our father David your servant said by the Holy Spirit why did the Gentiles rage the people's plot in vain the kings of the earth set themselves the rulers are gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed they're praying the psalm for truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus whom you anointed both Herod and Pontius Pilate along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel. To do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. You see what they've done. They've prayed this back to God and said, we, we see this fulfilled in what happened to Jesus. As Herod and Pilate, the, the Roman governors and leaders, they set themselves against Jesus to kill him. And this is what the Gentile nations wanted. And this is what the Jewish leadership wanted. They wanted to kill Jesus. The early Christian church is praying and saying they know that to reject Jesus is to reject God himself and his rule and his reign. We don't tend to see the world like that, do we? We think people really like God, however they conceive him to be, even if they are apathetic to or opposed to Jesus. But the early church understood that to reject Jesus was to reject God himself. Jesus put it this way in John chapter 5, verse 23. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Or as the Apostle John will later write in, in the first letter of John, chapter 2, verse 23, no one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. But here's what they've done. They've set themselves up against God and his anointed. And here's what they're saying. Verse 3 in the psalm. Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. You see what their goal is? It's autonomy, right? They want to govern themselves. They They want to be free of God's kingship. And they want to rule themselves. That, my friends, is an extremely common approach to life. We've all lived like this in varying degrees. They want to be master of their own fate and captain of their own soul. They want to do whatever they want to do, whenever they want to do, do it. And who really cares what God thinks after all? And God says, we do this in vain when we do it. We do it to no purpose. Why? It's futile and empty as an exercise and it will, because it will never lead you to be truly free from God. And his authority over you. It will, the psalmist says, just lead to great sorrow for you. That's what the end of the psalm warns us about. None of us should ever be surprised though, is what I'm saying. When we see this kind of heart attitude of antagonism to God, wherever we see it, whether it's the new atheists in their zeal to promote atheism Uh, putting advertisements on buses in Fort Worth that say millions of people are good without God as if to persuade people we don't need God millions of people don't don't need God why bother with God or if it's not the new atheists if it's political leaders dividing worship and religion telling us that you're welcome to worship God However you please. As long as you keep it in that building you meet in, oh, an hour a week or so. If you keep your worship in the temple or the mosque or the synagogue or the Christian church building, the worship's fine, but don't come out of the building and try to live your religion or talk about your religion. I mean, the hour a week is fine, but the other hours of the day and the other days of the week, well, well, you need to live how we live. You need to ignore God. Or if it's not that, it's just the daily disposition of the neighborhood where nobody talks about Jesus, nobody really cares about Jesus, and everybody thinks it's fine that you seem to care about Jesus, and it's fine if you believe in him, but just don't talk about him with us. We're getting along fine without him, thanks. We should never be surprised by those things. Why? Because they're evidence of the attitudes we've all had when we lived apart from knowing Jesus. And they're still the attitude Christians struggle with every day. The disposition of my heart that wakes up every morning and says, God isn't that big a deal. I don't really need him today. I'm getting along just fine without him today. I'm wise enough to do what I need to do today. So, so as a church, I want to say to you, even when we sing songs like the song that John Newton wrote, how sweet the name of Jesus sounds. We sing this hymn that goes, it, it talks about Jesus like this. Jesus, my brother Shepherd, friend, my prophet, priest, and king. My Lord, my life, my way, my end, end, accept the praise I bring. We turn right around immediately after that and sing the next verse, which is, Weak is the effort of my heart. And cold, my warmest thought. But when I see thee as thou art, I'll praise thee as I ought. You see, what we confess, this, we confess this in our confession of sin every Sunday. We haven't cared about his purposes. We haven't done what he's told us to do. So I'm, I'm, I'm not saying it's us and them. I'm saying it's all of us. This is what Christians are repenting of all the time. We don't stand outside of the experience and look down on everybody else. So what is God's response to all this, we should ask? And and you see it in verses 4 to 6 as we learn of the Father as he speaks. Verse 4, it says, he remains undisturbed by the turmoil of the nations. In fact, he who sits in the heavens laughs. It's the only place I know of where the Bible says God laughs. And here it's the laughter of derision. It's the laughter of scoffing and ridicule. This doesn't phase him, in other words. It doesn't hinder him. It doesn't thwart his purposes at all. Why? He rules heaven and earth, and he's untouchable in his sovereignty. It's it's, as though God is saying to all of us, do you really think you can prevail against me and drive me out of my universe? Really? I'm infinite, I'm eternal, I'm unchangeable, I made you, I'm unstoppable? You, you can't get rid of me. And so in verse 5, he speaks to them and the effect is terror. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, it says. It's, it's a strong rebuke to all of us. God is saying, opposition from you to me means opposition from me to you. You and I would say to all of us, therefore, do not trifle with God. He's bigger than that, He's more important than that, dear friends. Don't trifle with Him. But listen to what God's message, listen to what God is going to do in response to the rebellion. That's in verse 6. As for me, He says, I have set my king on Zion. My holy, hole, my holy hill. This is the centerpiece of the psalm. This is the most important verse in the psalm in some ways. The I here is emphatic. But I, here's what I will do, he says. I will set my king on his throne. And the throne here is Zion. It's, it's the hill of my holiness, he says. It's, it's the temple mount in Jerusalem where the temple is built. Jerusalem itself is sometimes called Zion. But his point is, I put my king on the throne of David, and this king, what will he do? He'll bring the nations into submission to himself. This is what he will do. So God is saying to us, look, you think you're going to throw off my rule, but you don't understand what my king will do. My king will be the true king. He'll be my true representative on the earth. And he will bring my rule to the earth. And he will deal with the rebellion of the nations. And this, friends, is what God did when, out of love for the world, he sent his one and only son into the world so that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. This is how God responds to this rebellion. He responds with a gracious and loving, open-handed gift of his most precious possession, his own beloved son. This is what he does in response. And in verses 7 through 9 then, you hear the voice of this son speak. The anointed one himself now speaks. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son today, I have begotten you. You, you see, this is who's speaking here, the, the Messiah King. And he tells us of the plan of God for his rule over the nations. And we need to understand that plan. Verse 7, he tells you it's, it's part of the decree that God has. In other words, the kingdom of the Messiah is founded on an eternal decree of God the Father. God's response to the rebellion of the nations is not a sudden resolve in response to human sin. It's it's not a flippant whim on God's part. Oh, I don't know what I'll do. Oh, here's what I'll do. No, no, no. God has always had this plan. This was a decree from the foundations of the earth. Peter, in the New Testament, looking back on the coming of Jesus, says about Jesus in 1 Peter chapter 1, 18 to 20, um, he says that, that we were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from our forefathers. Ransomed not with perishable things like silver or gold, but ransomed with the precious blood of Christ like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He, that lamb, was foreknown before the foundation of the world but he was made manifest in these last days for your sake, okay? God has always had this plan for his son to come, to be the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is why Adam and Eve, um, in, in, the, in, the, in the time of their sin in the garden, at the first rebellion, which all of this is just an expression of, the outworking of among the nations, In the first rebellion of Adam and Eve, even before they are banished from the garden, God comes to them and he says, you have sided with the enemy of your soul. You sided with the enemy against me. Here's what I will do. The seed of the woman, the offspring of the woman will crush the head of the serpent. The offspring of the woman will crush the enemy. And that offspring, Genesis chapter 3 verse 15, is going to rescue you and bring you back. Bring you home. God had given this promise all the way back in the garden. And now Psalm 2 is saying, and this Messiah who's promised is the, the divine son of God. And so verse 7, the language is, you are my son. And today I've begotten you. That, that language is quoted in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 5, to prove that Jesus is greater and higher Then even the angels, the the concern of the writer of the book of Hebrews is to show that we should never turn away from Jesus because he's the greatest thing God has ever sent. He's greater than the angels, he's he's greater than Moses, he's greater than the Old Testament, Joshua, he's bigger and more important than all of them. Chapter 1, he's greater than the angels, and to prove it, the writer quotes Psalm 2. For to which of the angels, this is Hebrews 1 verse 5, for to which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. See, see the writer's point. The angels are just created things. Jesus is the divine eternal son of God. Now don't let the language of today I have begotten you throw you off or confuse you. Some people get confused by that and think that somehow that means that Jesus had a beginning, that, that, that um, Jesus has not eternally existed as the son of God, but he, he, he began to be God. Or something like God at some point in his life on earth. That's not the point at all. Acts chapter 13 verse 33. Now look I said this psalm was quoted all over the New Testament. Uh, We're we're barely scratching the surface of the references. But if you were to go to Acts 13 verse 33. um, It says 32 and 33 says. And we bring you the good news. That what God promised to the fathers. This he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus. As also it is written in the second psalm, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. See, what the, what the writer of the book of Acts is saying is uh, that today is the day of resurrection. The day that Jesus was raised from the dead. Uh, the resurrection, of course, doesn't make Jesus God's son. He doesn't begin then, but the fact of his sonship is made clear to us in the resurrection, and the resurrection is itself his coronation as king. He's the firstborn from among the dead. He's the first one to die and come to life. And he's, he, and he's exalted. And so the Bible says today I begotten you, my, behold my king, alive from the dead. So Jesus is installed as ruler over all things. And the scope of that rule is how expansive? Is it gonna be small? Is it going to be mildly successful? No. Will it be great enough that we wouldn't want to miss it? Absolutely. Look at how expansive this reign is. Psalm chapter 2, verse 8. God says to him, ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You see, his very enemies are going to be his inheritance because jesus loves his enemies and he came to seek and to save the lost and he's going to be successful at it god raised him from the dead seated him at the right hand over all things all ruler all dominion all power all authority jesus is above every name that is named in this day in this age and also in the one which is to come and he set above all things for the good of the church which he loved as a husband his bride, he gave himself for her. And so Jesus here is the king and king of all kings, the Lord of all lords, of all nations, for all time. This is this is um, this is helpful for us as we understand the work of the church. What what's the work of the church? Well in part it's to carry out Jesus' own command and mandate from what often is called the great commission in Matthew 28 verse 19 when he says all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me go therefore and make disciples of all nations and lo I am with you always even to the end of the age you see he has all authority over the very ends of the earth he's going to make them his possession and the church is to go and make disciples of all nations because men, women, and children from every tribe, tongue, language, and people are going to be called into this kingdom. And so we're to seek for people to tell them about Jesus, to pray that God would save them, to pray for them to come to the King to be saved and to live under His authority. But not everyone is willing to do that, as you know. And Jesus, saw the psalm Says, Psalm 2 says, Jesus has authority even over those who refuse him. He has authority not only to save, but also to judge. That's the language of verse 9. After God says to him, ask me, and I'll give you the ends of the earth as a possession. He says, you shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them to pieces like a potter's vessel. It's, it's, uh, it's a hard picture of judgment the nations that refuse him will in his timing be humbled by him so i want to ask you this question if this is god's plan how foolish is it for us to persist in being masters of our own destiny and kings of our own kingdom how foolish and self-destructive for us to refuse the true king Why would we do that? Oh no, listen listen to the counsel of the narrator in verses 10 through 12. Here's what we should do. As he calls us to repentance, he says, oh, be wise and be warned. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. Blessed are all who take refuge In him. He gives you, friends, two choices serve the Son or perish. This is what God's word says receive the Son's salvation or be destroyed by him. Don't be wise in your own eyes, don't think you can be master of your own fate or you will perish. Now listen, I know that that's hard language. I know I'm using very direct and unvarnished language. The psalm is even more unvarnished, we could say. It's serious, but it's absolutely called for. There is life and death, eternal and everlasting. And disaster awaits us if we do not heed the warning and embrace the invitation. Listen, this December of 1984, there was a dense fog in England on the M25 near Godstone in Surrey, a few miles south of London. And, and the, the hazard warning lights were on, so people driving down the highway would know that it was dangerous ahead, but it was ignored by most drivers. And at 6.15 in the morning, a lorry carrying huge rolls of paper was involved in an accident. And within minutes, the road was engulfed in carnage as dozens of cars were wrecked. Ten people were killed. A police officer arriving soon on the scene, two of them ran back up the motorway to stop oncoming traffic. They waved their arms and shouted as loud as they could, but most drivers took no notice of them and raced on towards the disaster that awaited them. The policemen took up traffic cones and flung them at the drivers' windshields, trying in desperate attempt to get them to slow down and stop. One told with tears of how he he went car by car trying to warn them, and they zipped right on by and he heard the sickening sound of the impact of their crash as the wreckage spread. What were those policemen doing? They were aiming in love to warn. And Would you look how God, in great grace and love, has warned us how patiently he deals with all of us. He's long-suffering. This is such a gracious warning in Psalm 2. Matthew Henry says, He that has power to destroy them shows them he has no pleasure in their destruction. And so he says, kiss the sun. Blessed are all who find refuge in him. I offer him for the sins of the world. Come to him. Uh, the, the Old Testament said this as well. The prophet Ezekiel in, in chapter 18 verse 23 said, I, God speaking in the prophet says, Have I any pleasure in the death of the wicked, declares the Lord, and not rather that he should turn from his way and live? Later on, Ezekiel says in chapter 33, verse 11, Say to them, as I live, declares the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked would turn from his way and live. Turn back. Turn back from your evil ways, says the prophet. For why will you die, O house of Israel? Do you you see how God appeals to you? Now, some of us are saying, yeah, but this language, kiss the son. I mean, that's like, okay, you want me to bow down before this anointed one and kiss the feet of the king? And somehow that seems so demeaning. It seems so unpleasant. But but what you notice is when you bow down before this king to kiss him, what you notice is nail prints in his feet. And that is because the king who's come to rule is the king who came to die. And his death was for you and his rule is for you. He invites you into a kingdom, not for his sake, in which he simply uses you as an instrument for his own purposes, but he invites you into a kingdom for your sake. His kingdom is for your benefit. It is for your everlasting joy. And those nail prints on those feet are for you. Because he's been punished for you. What your rebellions deserve. And so he invites you to come to Jesus. And so the psalmist says, how blessed. How, how happy. How joyful and fulfilled and complete is, are all who take refuge in him. True safety is found in him. Friends, there is no refuge apart from. From him, but there is refuge in him. And that is what is presented before you in this table. That is the meaning of this meal. It's the table of the Lord Jesus. And by bread and wine, he is present to you, he is as near to you as bread and wine. You who look to him in faith. And Jesus, when he took this, when he instituted this meal, he took the Passover bread and he said, this is my body. That Passover meal that said to every Israelite, God spared us the judgment that came upon Egypt. God spared us under the blood of the lamb. And Jesus now takes that same meal and says, I am the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Come to me. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we praise you, we thank you that Jesus is a great Savior of the worst there are. Jesus is the Savior of the chief of sinners. I pray you would impress upon our hearts our need for Him and that you would forgive us all our sins For he died for them. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.